Welcome to 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, a production of the McFarland Group. My name is Deb McFarland Enright. Thank you for joining us as we continue our series, Pivot Through the Pandemic. My guest is Scott Campbell, founder and executive director of Persist Nashville, a Nashville nonprofit determined to double the number of college graduates from this area. To date, Persist has served over 700 Nashville High School graduates as they pursue a college degree. The persistent lack of success in moving Nashville public high school students through to the journey of attaining a higher education degree moved Scott to act. We all know that an individual's life's choices are affected by education opportunities. Many of us know the value of that gentle or not so gentle nudge from someone to get that college application completed, get that FAFSA information collected, or hear that friendly voice that continued to tell you, yes, you can do it, even when you believed you could not once you'd attended your first college class. And finally, those around you who continued to help you navigate the world of work and adulting after college. But many of today's high school and college students do not have that support. So Scott and his team at Persist Nashville created an organization to disrupt this portion of the status quo. Scott joins us on 3 a.m., What's Keeping You Up at Night, for our series, Pivot Through the Pandemic. Our conversation shows the power of the Persist Nashville model as it seamlessly met the expanded challenges COVID brought to those his organization serves. He knows these kids, and he is determined to help them be successful. He is a former classroom teacher and administrator. In his career, he has worked at six different urban, rural, and suburban schools, He has led and taught at traditional public, magnet, and charter schools in four different states and the nation's capital. We have so much to learn. Let's jump in. Scott, we're just so glad that you are here joining us at 3 a.m. What's keeping you up at night, particularly in this series about pivoting through the pandemic. The focus for us talks about the sustainability of these organizations that are purposeful and passion-driven to make the world better, what happens during a global crisis, and how it impacts your work. So first of all, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. And excited to be here and, and appreciate you, appreciate the work you're doing, and really excited to talk a little bit about what we're learning. Oh, thank you. Well, Scott, with Persist Nashville, let's just jump right in, right? So if you did, how did you confront and confound COVID with any particular pivot? Briefly, and you know a little bit about Persist, right? We're a college persistence organization, but we were really founded on this idea that we can coach lots of students which is what's needed to be able to have a scalable impact on our city using technology at the founding, kind of a foundational belief and idea. And how that plays out is we think about how can we coach more students per coach? So 
thinking about what that ratio looks like. Most college persistence organizations coach at about a rate of, of 30 to 1 to 60 to 1. And we really have in our vision that we want to be able to coach students at a rate of 300 to 1 or 400 to 1. And the only way you can do that is using technology. So that's using text, using video platforms, using kind of scalable solutions. And also, more importantly than any of that, is like data-driven decision-making. So looking at the data and then being able to make specific decisions about which students get what inputs and how do we support some students with a lot more and some students don't need as much from us. COVID, to some degree, was a proving point. Hey, we've already got this model that we've started to set up, but we've been doing a lot of in-person mentoring. We've been on campus a lot. We're working with students. Then COVID hits and there aren't students on campuses. They're all at home. They're all over the place. We had to be able to take this idea and execute really well. And one thing we saw starting from the beginning of March to April is that students needed somebody. <laughs> they needed community. There was a lot more neediness in terms of someone to be able to talk to, get help. They were having trouble contacting their campuses, contacting professors. They were looking for someone who was there, and we were only a text away. And so we were communicating. Our engagement increased 60% in the course of one month with our students. The need increased. So students were needing things like hotspots and computers and tech to be able to set themselves up at home and be able to do their learning virtually, that universities were kind of scrambling to figure out how they were going to support their students. So immediately it kind of threw us into, oh gosh, <laughs> what our big idea here is this is our big moment. This is our big opportunity. And I would say that wasn't necessarily a huge pivot, but it was a, a proving point and an execution point for us. And that was kind of the first hit. You know, our students had a need, but then we had to pivot things about how our team worked together. And, you know, what is our model in terms of weekly meetings and task management and organization and planning? It also impacted funding sources and how do we partner with other organizations and plan out and budget and build these kind of relationships. We were looking to do more fee for service, but everyone was a little bit scared with what money they had and what money they could allocate and what were going to be the long-term impacts on their organization of COVID. So we had to be able to just like make decisions and keep moving forward and say like, listen, we're going to just keep focus on students, do the work that's necessary and needed in front of us right now. And with that, we'll open up. The questions will be answered later on. <laughs> so I've always been a firm believer of do the thing in front of you as well as you can. And that's it. And then you will learn what you need to do next from doing that job well. That's terrific. So I love the the notion of the proving point because you have always been tech-based. I mean, there also was the on-campus, but it's as though this idea of scale was so baked into the plan that you were able to respond versus react to COVID, which that is quite different. Reactions aren't necessarily, they can be chaotic in nature it's less easy to shore those up for sustainability. But in terms of responding, because it's part of the plan, that makes great sense. It sounds like um, you did really well in the big moment. I think that's wonderful. It also sounds as though, and let's talk to this. So the outcomes I think would be fabulous for people to hear in terms of meeting the needs 
But Scott, it also sounds like, and I do understand the focus and the niche, you know, focus on the students. And you guys do that in terms of serving as guides, mentors for the college experience for first gens. But it also sounds, and would you speak to this notion of also helping students supply the technology needs that they have? So if they were out without a hotspot, if their zip code did not have broadband as as strongly as it would need to when everybody's studying from home, what it meant to get technological devices in their hands. Can you talk about how Persist Nashville worked to fill that gap for students? I'll tell you a couple of quick stories on this. I think one of the things that's been great in being kind of a scrappy startup is we haven't had a lot of, that's how we always done things or over bureaucratic processes towards being able to support the students we need. Great example of this is soon as things hit, students who didn't have, you know, a laptop, we could send a text to them and say, who needs a laptop? <laughs> students <laughs> fill out a form. I go on Amazon. I look for a refurbished laptop, send it directly to them you know, spend $150 and they have a refurbished laptop at their home delivered in three days. Obviously, things were a little bit slower because Amazon was trying to figure out how to navigate, but it was a fairly quick process. And and we were able to help some students right away, you know, so that it wasn't going to be an issue. Most schools kind of took a two-week break. They took an extended spring break while they were trying to figure out what their protocols are going to be. In that, we were able to kind of stay connected with students and get them set up for success, just planning on things being virtual. Got a call from a partner at a local community college here in Nashville who said, I read your newsletter. <laughs> I saw that you're providing this to students. How are you doing that? And I said, they tell me they needed a laptop. They give me their address. I send them a laptop to that address. <laughs> and she said, wow, that's great. We at our community college, you know, we're having trouble just finding laptops, and then we have to go through the process through the state to get them. Each of them is around like five to $600. And then we have to figure out how to ship them, whether students can come pick them up. And there was just like a number of barriers that you would expect, like bidding, you know, an RFP process, like we're going to buy all these computers. And so the community college, it was a foundation associated with community college said, hey, can you help these students? I said, yeah, no problem. So they sent us the students and they said what they needed. They needed a Wi-Fi hotspot. They needed a computer. And we were able to just send those to those students. And then they reimbursed us as a nonprofit partner for that work later on. So, you know, I think a willingness to try to say, we have a process, but we want to try to get any type of barrier towards actually meeting the students' needs out of the way was super helpful. And then it allowed us to be able to partner with other organizations who, who needed that same support. Same thing applied to, you know, everyone was worried about food security very early. And, and we're like, we're going to buy Kroger gift cards <laughs> and we're going to tell students, we have a $25 gift card. If you need it, no questions asked, just request it. And we were able to send those out, put them in the mail, get them in kids' hands, make sure that they had food as many of their jobs for themselves and their families were closing. So, you know, that's always been a focus of mine is what things do we have in terms of our company or business processes that are creating unnecessary barriers towards serving the people who we have set out to serve? So I love the piece about the scrappiness because it allows for, again, the responsiveness and the flexibility. I can also imagine 
hearing from community college president or leader saying, you can't imagine the red tape (laughs) that we have to go through so that you're able to cut through that and help the students in real time is certainly an advantage and certainly cements partnerships for the future. It's always helpful to those organizations, those more governmental, bureaucratic-born organizations to be able to have somebody who can be as swift in terms of response as you were. Scott, I want to talk about the contextual knowledge you have in facing these, not the challenges, but these opportunities for service that COVID provided for you. And it does take having that contextual knowledge to understand and also think ahead of what could be necessary. You brought up the notion about the lack of food resources or resources for food, and then just knowing to jump to to those gift cards. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to know some of this contextual knowledge in terms of the socioeconomic needs of students that you serve? You know, I'm a career educator. I spent 16 years in classroom or as a assistant principal and principal of schools and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the most basic level. Students can't learn until they've had their safety taken care of, till their food is taken care of, till they have clothes on there. has always been, I think, a basic understanding and something that I've seen in day-to-day action as an educator my whole life. So I feel like I've learned through experience, how do we support students first with the the basic Maslow's hierarchy needs, and then we can go to the much deeper philosophical and moral and educational needs that they might have. So it's that one piece where it comes from. I think as a leader, I've also failed at this. I guess in the effort to hold high expectations of all students and hold the line and expect the same out of everyone. Sometimes I didn't always pay attention to the specific needs of students and families and how those socioeconomic or racial constructs and barriers that have been put in, systemic barriers, might impact my ability to be able to serve them and their ability to be able to to grow and learn, right? And so I think that's something I've had to learn over time. I've been through groundwater training and you know work on DEI over the past three to four years of my life as a principal, as well as now as a nonprofit leader. And I think that's helped me to understand, you know, the barriers that many students are facing and communities are facing here. So I'd say that's a piece of it. How do I take my like leadership style and like thinking? I mean, that goes all the way back to college. I've always been a servant leadership, you know, focus. We go to the Greenwood Institute and thinking through kind of how servant leaders work. John C. Maxwell was super influential from the beginning. I've also always been a believer in this, you know, Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, and he talks about this concept of the law of legacy. I think the fundamental belief in the law of legacy is that if I were to leave this place tomorrow, would it be better off? or worse off. A lot of times leaders think that when they leave, everything falls apart, then it was all because of them. They were a great leader. I think if I leave tomorrow, (laughs) things fall apart, I was a bad leader. And so creating processes, right? Planning, being really smart on operations and systems, making those systems as we go back to what we talked about before, as simple and clean as possible, You know, making sure everyone understands how to do things whether or not you're running those things or not, you know, if you're out, 
then things keep flowing, then you know you've been successful in terms of your organizational effectiveness. I mean, this also goes to those 16 years of being in public schools, both kind of traditional as well as charter, to understand some of the challenges that bureaucracy brings. And while there can be strength in numbers, there also can be some real immovable parts. So bringing all of that knowledge and experience of having been in those kinds of organizations and then more nimbly, right, at Republic, and then bringing all that to Persist Nashville, I'm sure has been extremely helpful. We'll take a short break and be back with Scott Campbell. The McFarland Group works with nonprofit social impact organizations who are determined to serve more. We help leadership meet their intended outcomes, expand their portfolio of services, and provide greater impact to those they serve. Our process brings clarity, confidence, and control to their work. Clarity by working with an organization to achieve meaningful results, confidence in themselves and their team to implement their strategy, and control to take high-value actions to achieve their intended results. Let's connect to see how we can walk alongside you to develop a strategy for you and your organization for greater impact to serve more. Contact us at www.themcfarlandgroup.com. And now, back to our conversation. I want to get back to the notion of scale and the notion of being a guide for a first gen, a mentor for a first gen, and moving from, it's very interesting to move from kind of one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one, you know, those kind of ratios, and then to move to 300 to 400 to one. Can you talk about the model of that scale? And as you also said, understanding the diverse needs that students have, not in only how they learn, but what they need to learn and meet them where they are so they can be their best selves, right, as they go on to complete their degree. Can you talk about what that 300 to 1 or 400 to 1 might look like? Sure. So I want to give credit where credit's due. I'd say much of our kind of coaching model, the credit goes to Kristen King, who is my co-founder and director of coaching. So before working with me as our director of college access and persistence when I was a high school principal. She worked at Inside Track, which is a for-profit college persistence company that coached students at community colleges and four-year colleges across the country through text. So this idea that you can coach students effectively, create really strong coaching arches for a year for a student, and that communication can happen in a meaningful personal relationship-based way via text is something that she really brought to me and said, hey, we can do this. And so I'm super thankful for that. But, you know, we, we've, this tension has been there from the beginning, what we would call personalization at scale. How do we coach our students effectively, a lot of them, and still there's a person behind it and we know who that person is and we dig in deep. So I'll start couple things. I'll start on the systemic side, like how do we like plan and what systems and then some of the pivots we've made on that. I think the first is, is you have to have a good data management 
system. You have to have a way to be able to communicate quickly and easily with students. And then you have to have a way to be able to assess risk and assign out tasks and, you know, just think about data management, right? So we've been using this platform called GradSnap. It was created by the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation. They have the Dell Scholars Program. They coach about 1,000 students nationwide yearly. They offer a $5,000 scholarship to what we call EFC Zero students. Those are estimated family contribution of zero. So these are all students who are Pell-eligible students. And you know, Pell-eligible students persist at a level about 23% nationwide. So that's only 23% of students who are Pell-eligible or low-income students are actually earning a college degree. Their results using this kind of platform where you can text a student and email them, you can case manage, you can assign labels, you can give tasks to students. They actually have an 83% graduation rate of the students they work with. And they're coaching at almost a thousand to one ratio. That's the first piece is you just like, in order to even scale at all, you have to have the right tools. So I think once you have the right tools, we can text all these kids, but that doesn't mean that they're going to respond. That doesn't mean that they're going to feel like they know who their coach is. And we saw that problem really early, and we had to shift and change a lot. And kind of where we've gotten, Kristen and I, is what we call this personalization at scale. Think about every month as a coaching arc. And our goal is to engage with our students meaningfully every single month. And we realized that in year one, we were honestly only reaching 25 to 35% of our students. In year two, we're now reaching 60 to 75% of our students. Every single month, we're having a meaningful conversation and chatting with them. How do we do that? Well, signing out every single student, knowing what the anchor is for every single student. So some students really might like anime. Some students may, you know, have a child themselves. Some students may be really interested in law. And then being able to follow up with them specific questions around that. So every single month, we try to use that anchor that we've learned, this is something we know about this student, to lead to a more meaningful conversation. So like, hey, how's your daughter doing? I haven't heard from you in a while. Or have you seen this new show this past month? Or, hey, have you done any searching for summer internships that may be paralegal positions? So that way, when they're getting a text from us, they know this is actually Kristen, this is actually Scott, this is actually one of their coaches, and they know this about me. And, oh, no, I haven't thought about that in a while. And so then that can lead to a deeper conversation and often them identifying something else that we didn't know that we could support or help them with. So, like, that's been a slow new iteration. It's taken us a while to get there, and we still haven't perfected it yet. But I think for us, the way we think about this work is strong, simple, easy-to-use systems that allow us to communicate, and then ways and processes that we can kind of make sure that we know something about them and that we're following up consistently, and then using data to drive our effectiveness. That's kind of how we've done that. It sounds as though you're building kind of customized curriculum for them over the year, answering needs, filling gaps, either with information, confirmation, affirmation through relationship. So I'm going to go back to 300 to one because I don't know why I'm stuck on that. But does that mean that Scott Campbell contacts 300 individuals a month or do you have group texts or I'm trying to see it? 
I actually contact all the students we work with on a monthly basis. We've worked with about 700 students, and I can do that through email. So I can send an email out to 700 students, same email, they get that. I can then send out a mass text to 400 students who we know are are active in school right now that are engaged with us. And I could send that out through the GradSnap platform just by typing it out, sending it out, like check-in. So every student gets a pulse check two times a month, you know, where we're asking them on a scale of one to five, five being great, one being not great, how are you doing? Then we have a, I respond to each of those. That's a mass text, but then I will respond individually to those students based off of five, four, three, two, one through the platform. Then, you know, based off of the ones and twos, they're going to get some additional coaching and support. You said you're a two. Tell me more. What's the biggest thing that made you a two? Then that leads to a whole coaching conversation that happens over text. At the same time, we also have other pieces to our, our, our program so that we're not doing all the work, just two coaches. We also, there's three buckets of work in Persist Nashville. The first is coaching. The second is community. The third is care. So we actually train 16 campus leads. They're on 14 different campuses. So we have two campuses, with two leads. And their job is to check in on their peers who are in college with them two times a month as well and then share any flags or information with us that they're worried about a specific student or a need they might have. So there's a little bit of like, we have a student who's kind of boots on the ground talking to another student who can really get information that helps us be able to coach that student and support them better. And then we also try, if a student needs help with an emergency fund support, they can get up to $200 from us, as we talked about before, for a computer or gift card for food, or it could be a book, which is most often, or payment on their tuition or something that they just didn't have the money to pay, and that could be a barrier to persistence. And we try to connect students with professional mentors so they can talk to someone in a field of their interest and develop that kind of career focus. So while only maybe 20 students may be doing a career conversation a month out of the 406 active students, and maybe about 150 to 200 of our students are actually connected with their campus lead, and then there's only maybe 15 taking advantage of the Persist Fund every month, then you have all of our students getting, you know, weekly quotes, getting a pulse check, getting emails and different information. So it's really about layers is how you do that collectively. Yeah, I like that. That's terrific. And it does meet people where they are and through a variety of ways, right? Almost like, how do I reach the different students in my classroom? Because they all have different learning styles. I mean, there are some large classic kind of bins and categories, but they all are going to reach each day and the instruction each day differently, depending on what's happening at home, how they learn, et cetera. That's really interesting. So obviously for any nonprofit social impact organization that's listening, this just exudes scalability. So would you talk about what your future plans are in terms of scaling up? Sure. I'd say the first scaling needs to happen at home. <laughs> it's kind of like that belief that, you know, before you can go change your world, make sure you change your family and you've taken care of those who are kind of closest. And so, you know, we're Persist Nashville. I love this city. I love these kids. There's a major problem. Only 26% of them are earning a post-secondary degree. 
and we know we can fix that problem. So the first scaling that needs to happen is being able to serve as many students as possible in Nashville. And we have a really great opportunity through new partnerships with Metro Nashville Public Schools, a few independent charter schools, as well as some other nonprofit organizations like the YMCA Latino Achievers and Black Achievers and Oasis Center to be able to get as many students as we can of this class of 2021. And our hope is to be coaching going from 400 students that we work with now out of the class of 2020 to close to 2,000 students, which would be near 40 to 45% of this graduating class of 2021. And so that's kind of the scaling that we're focused on now. And we want to do that right. I mean, honestly, tomorrow that Metro Nashville Public School said, you can have every single student and coach them. We'd say, yes, let's do it, right? Give us 4,700 kids and we will coach all of those students. And this is a continuation of their K-12 support as they get support through their first year of college into their second year of college. And we know that we will see drastic change in our college persistence numbers. I think three to five years down the road, as we get this right, which we're still learning, we have not gotten it perfect, and we're in unprecedented times in COVID that have impacted numbers for the city as a whole, even while our students have done progressively better who work with Persist. The district has had a really rough year when you look at graduation, persistence numbers, enrollment numbers out of the class of 2020, obviously, in COVID. But three to five years from now, we'd love to be able to say, here's the systems, here's the basic process. And if you at Persist Columbus, Ohio, Persist Kansas City, Persist San Antonio, like you want to create a similar type model, these are the pieces that you need to put in place. These are the systems. These are the relationships that need to happen. And then we can kind of help support and build a city-based model that could be used across the United States. That sounds terrific. As we kind of put a wrap on all of this, I understand that the systems and simplicity, the guidance of servant leadership, the tremendous partnership that you have with Kristen and the the belief you all have in each other. The one component I haven't really focused on a lot is this notion of what it's going to be like for both of you when you're alums of Persist become the coaches themselves. What will that feel like? (laughs) That's it. That's the goal right there. (laughs) Kristen and I have said that, you know, when we talk about three to five-year goals, I just shared with you like some big picture, like, oh, five years from now, this would be great. But honestly, five years from now, we will be happy if the students that we've coached in 2020 are coaching the graduates of 2024, and that our organization is made up of the diverse first-generation low-income students that we get to serve each day. They're the ones who are truly making it up. And we do think that the way we get there is through investing and developing them, not just to persist, not just to survive, but really to thrive. And I think we have a campus lead program where we have 16 campus leads. Our interns last summer of, you know, the three interns we had, two of them actually worked for us as students part-time during the year. Like, I think there's a lot of unique opportunities as we serve college students to not only listen to them, have them drive our work now, to do the work, to get involved, to get engaged, to develop their 
college persistence ability through giving them meaningful work and supporting themselves and others in this work. So yeah, I think if COVID has done one thing for us, it's actually been an unexpected opportunity to say, yeah, we've relied on college students to do a lot of work for us, social media work, campus lead development work, our persist shadow and relationships with businesses. And they're unbelievably smart and capable. And we just want to keep finding ways to actually engage them in the work we're doing and lean on them and grow with them. That's been a huge blessing and is really, you know, the vision um, for what we can become. Scott, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You know, you show us and remind us that particularly for those who are in that first generation groundbreaking position in their family's history, that some of the social context that those who already have a family tree with college graduates lack. And it sounds as though proof is certainly in the pudding with not only what's happened during COVID, but in the model that you and Kristen have created, that this notion of a collective, a community helping college students get through college, enjoy college, find themselves in college can be done just through persistence on the part of the entire community and that it can start quite simply with getting to know what a student is interested in, what makes them tick, keeping in contact with them through a simple text. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. You know it means so much to me to have you as a part of this series. I am just one of your biggest fans. I'm very thankful you are with us today. Well, thanks, Deb. And I so appreciate the work that you do and you have done for us. You continue to do for Nashville community and other social impact partners that you work with across the country. So thanks for this opportunity. Keep up the good work. Very kind of you, Scott. And you do the same. We'll have through all of the resources that we will include with this podcast. We'll make sure folks know how to get in contact with you. So that if they're college students and they're interested, they can send you a text if there's funders out there or other organizations that might be able to help you. This is a part of what this podcast is about as well. So Scott, thank you again. We look forward to working with you in the future. Scott and I met while members of the latest in-flight cohort at Nashville's iconic Entrepreneur Center. When you are in Scott's presence, you understand his unflappable determination to provide the essential support to high school and college students to successfully navigate the journey to and through college. COVID proved that the Persist Nashville support model for high school and college students works and can scale. That's magic in the world of nonprofit social impact organizations. Please look them up volunteer, and support them. My thanks to Scott for sharing the story of Persist Nashville with us here on 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, and my continued thanks to Relationary Marketing for their expertise in supporting our podcast. Our series continues next month and takes us to Washington, D.C. and a nonprofit credit union. We will learn how the organization successfully pivoted their structures to support their constituents through this pandemic. Thank you for listening. My name is Deb McFarlane Enright. Until next time.